Hello and welcome to the Heart of the Piano podcast, where we are exploring the world of piano. And today we have a fantastic interview with the concert pianist Carl Lutchmeyer. As always, I'm going to make loads of show notes, and in the show notes will be links to information about him, his website, recordings, all that kind of good stuff. And um, you can listen to the beginning of the interview to hear more information about who he is. But this this is a great interview, covering loads of really interesting stuff. So I uh, hope you enjoy this. Hi, hi, Carl. Thanks very much for joining me. Uh, you've been super busy, so I really appreciate your time. Uh, how have you been? Oh, very well, thanks, Bob, and, and really lovely to chat to you at last. Um, so thanks very, very much for having me on. <laughs> yes, we've been, we've been spending months trying to make this happen. Um, there's so many things that, that um, I would really like to talk to you about. You have so many strings to your bow, so many interesting things about you. Um, uh, I know that, that I think about five days ago you just had a, an interview. Uh, is it the Cross-eyed Pianist? Uh, is it her website? And uh, so yeah, there's already a lot of uh, biographical information about you there. But how would you sum yourself up um, to the listeners, uh, maybe with some more unusual sort of things about you? Oh golly, that that really is <laughs> a, a good question. All right, well, um, I'm the very first Indian Steinway artist. Um, and so we're a fairly rare breed. Um, but equally, um, I, I do a wide range of things in music. I, I do some writing on music. I do some research. Um, I've been a professor, an academic professor of music. Obviously, I'm a pianist. And occasionally you find me playing keyboards in a prog rock band. Um, mm. So, yeah, I have a fairly full musical life, I suppose. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so uh, you have the Busoni Concerto coming up. That's, uh, that's epic. I think epic is, is exactly the word. As, as one of my um, old school friends said, it's, it's probably the closest you get to prog rock while still being classical. And I can kind of see what he means. Mm. It kind of embraces the world, if you like. Right. Yeah, interesting. Um, so, so your prog rock band, define prog rock for me. Golly, I think probably the easiest way to think about it is it's music that has a kind of classical approach, a sort of process-driven approach. It's not just chorus and verse, but played on traditional rock, electronic instruments. Having said that, I mean, I'm also a theremin player in the band and, and there's nothing yeah. particularly traditional about our um, our instrument list, which often runs to 30 or 40 instruments amongst uh, seven of us. But but yeah, it's, <laughs> it's kind of classical music on um, on electric instruments. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was one reason why I really wanted to interview you. Um, I'm, I'm a classical pianist, but I play electric guitar and I love prog rock. <laughs> so I thought, ah, oh, the, the, the man plays prog rock. Excellent. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. But yeah, let's, let's come back to that. So, so you sure. are a, a classical pianist, a, a very high level classical pianist. Um, um, can you um, tell uh, the listeners uh, maybe a, a sort of um, short biography of your career as a concert pianist? Sure, yeah. Um, so I went to the Royal College of Music in London and studied there. And then I studied for a while in Moscow with Lev Naumov, who had been the assistant of the famous Heinrich Neuhaus. And in fact, I was actually in, in Moscow when Richter died and we all went over from the conservatoire over to, to see his body laying in state. Um, and it was sort of around that time, this is the the 90s, I was beginning to, to win a few competitions and, and play concerts. Um, and then sort of almost out of nowhere, the Royal College, where I had formerly studied, offered me a fellowship. And I went back to, to they said, well, you know, do, do pretty much what you want with it, but we need you to put some input into the, into the life of the college. And so I started mm. doing various lectures, particularly um, piano repertoire lectures for, for young pianists and students. 
And because I was doing that, I got in touch with um, someone I'd been reading for years, David Dubal, um, who yeah. ran a very similar course at the Juilliard, as, as I'm sure you know. Mm. And and I just sort of sent him in those days a fax saying, I've, I'm, I'm coming to New York. I was I was making my New York debut. Is there, is there any chance I could just come by and, and hang and meet you? And and he invited me over and we became very, very good friends. And I started doing some classes out in Juilliard and started uh, this sort of separate part strand to my career and he invited me to do some writing for him for for a couple of his compilation books and then the writing began to take off a bit and I ended up doing some work for Dorling Kindersley their their guide to classical music uh, which led me to bizarrely have a weekly column in time out in the in a classical music column which was which was tremendous fun and I did that for about four or five years Um, all the while yeah, well, you know, I think for me, the really important thing has been about communication in its broader sense in, in music. It's, it's very easy to play. Well, it's, of course, it's not easy to play. It's always hard to play the piano. But one can go around the, the, the normal, the traditional spaces where which are set up for, for concerts and expect the same kind of audiences all the time. Um, but for instance, for the last 10 years, I've been doing a lot of work in India mm-hmm. where... I'm doing a lot of audience creation um, because people have literally never seen a piano, never heard a piano, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to try and introduce them to, to Western classical music is a, is a completely different kind of thing. So, it's, yeah, I, I'd like to think that that's been a spread of, mm-hmm. of introducing music to a broader public. Um, and indeed, now I do quite a lot of public lecturing on music um, at various courses and, and occasionally pre-concert talks and things. Again, just trying to trying to get people to get to know music a little better from from the inside. Um, my, I, I, as you probably know, I have um, a series called Conversational Concerts, mm-hmm. and the idea for that was simply that one can go around an art gallery very easily with one of those um, those speaker phones, and they, you know, you stand in front of the right painting, and it tells you all you need to know about it. And I wanted to create something not dissimilar for um, for classical music that that one could, as an intelligent human being with with you know an interesting job and so on, um, have an intelligent um, discussion or, or indeed education about a piece before hearing it, um, which was a bit more interesting than the standard program note. Here's a bit of history, and this is how the piece is going to go. Um, so that's yeah, that's been very much the sort of thing I've I've based my career on. Mm, yeah, and. Uh... Actually, one of the um, reasons why I, well, one of the many reasons why I really wanted to interview you, uh, where we were saying just before, I spent some time traveling around India, like a, a year or so. And uh, what really struck me, uh, you know, I was really interested in the music and I, I learned some sitar and flute when, while I was there. And, uh, and it oh, struck wow. me that, yeah. that very few people in India um, at, at the time, it seemed to me, were they weren't even remotely interested in Western classical music. Now, that might be because, obviously, as, as a traveller, as a backpacker, I only had access to a certain sort of demographic in, in India. But but I, I, I thought, yeah, it was, it's really interesting uh, what you're saying about actually creating new new audiences um, in a country where I think that the, there's not a lot of existing exposure to classical piano. Well, I think that's really beginning to change. Um, I think probably over the last 10 years or eight years or so. And it seems to me um, that this is absolutely wrapped up in the fact that the Indian middle class is expanding rapidly and it has a very large disposable income. Um, Most families go out for dinner two or three times a week, even more, and, and don't think about it twice. And there is this sort of, there's this cash in the market at the moment. 
And we see this time and time again, whether it's Paris in the 1830s or Russia in the 1880s or, or indeed New York and, and America generally in the 1920s, 30s. As soon as there is a kind of disposable income and an expanding middle class, we see people wanting to, I would say, buy into Western classical music. And they always start out with educating their children. And this is exactly what has been happening in India over the last eight or nine years. And large, large numbers of, of children are studying uh, mostly piano, voice and violin at the moment. And indeed, I mean, bizarrely, Chennai is currently the largest exam centre for music exams on earth. Yeah. Um, wow. their, their, their season of exams runs for nine months with between two and four examiners examining concurrently. Um, it's just, just kind of off the wall. So it's, it's expanded enormously. Um, a little while back, well, I suppose about six years ago, the Indian government allowed far more imports of pianos to come in, which and they're, they're flying out of the out of the showrooms. Uh, so there's become this real, real interest. Um, and I think, as far as I know, India is now one of the only places on earth where there is more demand than supply for Western music teaching. Um, so I, I, I travel all over India. <clears throat> doing all sorts of things for um, for music education and particularly working with teachers. And I always ask the teachers one question. Do you have a waiting list? And I am yet to meet a single teacher who has not said, yes, of course I've got a waiting list, which is very surprising for those of us in the West who, who really you know, are, are not finding it that easy to uh, to um to work as teachers and, and performers. So I think it's it's a, an increasing economy in that way. Mm. And and is this a class thing that people are, are putting their kids in because they want to show off that they're of, of good breeding, a good class? <laughs> I I mean I think there's always going to be, particularly in India, some aspect of that. Um, of course, originally after after the British left, um, Western music was largely in the hands of two groups: the Christians and the Parsi community and and they kept it going pretty much for the following 50 45 years um since then we find all sorts of people um and from all communities and all cultures now taking it up but yes i would say it's i mean when i say middle class of course this is actually much more about money than than class and and just having mm. professional jobs and so on but i'm very gratified to see that a great number of educator establishments have created projects around um, impoverished and indeed even slum children and teaching them music. And we find um, we find people from all walks of life now engaging with Western classical music and, right. and learning it and performing it um, right, right through, right through India. Or when I say right through India, mostly in the cities. I think it's not so much happening in, in rural India, but, but, you know, there are a lot of, mm. a lot of cities in India. And, and we have this bizarre a situation where, as, as you'll be aware, there are 1.3 billion people in India, but we mm. don't yet have a degree awarding conservatoire. Um, and with 1.3 billion people, there can't not be some really amazingly talented musicians there mm. um, who just need opportunity. And I'm seeing this all the time. I go to city to city and I meet people who just haven't really had the opportunity to get a great training and are doing it, you know, working from YouTube or, or whatever, just, just finding their way. And some of them are doing it absolutely brilliantly. 
And, you know, it's quite obvious that with a better Western musical infrastructure there, we could actually create something very, very strong. And, and, and with that many people and with that much interest, something fundamentally useful, um, both to India and, and internationally. Wow, right. So so in about 10 years' time, there's going to be this giant explosion of Indian pianists. It's going to be like the new China. <laughs> well, I don't think it'll be quite that giant. Uh, I think we've got to remember that there are post-colonial issues involved here. I mean, this is a Western music in a, in a country that's trying to establish its nationalism. Um, and also, of course, um, there are many studies which suggest that the partly the Chinese take-up of Western music is related to the fact that um, the study of music falls very well within um, Confucianist thought. Um, oh. And I think that doesn't quite work so well in India. But I think there will be certainly some kind of apparency. I've certainly met maybe four or five young musicians in India in the last few years who I could imagine when they hit about early 20s might well be really big presences internationally. And certainly it is my hope that we might be able to start a, a, a proper international conservatoire in India in about 10 years when we have developed the teaching to such an extent that there will be sufficient students to join such a conservatoire. And that's, that's my, my key aim um, at the mm. moment in India. Yeah, excellent. Um, you you've really dangled a, a very um, a very tasty carrot there of, of Confucianist Ooh, okay. thought, uh, and and the to how that falls in with um, learning the piano. I'd I'd love for you to to talk a little bit about how Confucianist sort of um, uh, um, heritage uh, goes well with with learning piano. Well, I have to say that I, I am not expert in this area. This is just from the studies I've read. But my understanding is that the approach to learning and particularly to focusing very, very clearly on, on a, a set task, but a, but a clearly defined area is considered to be part of an approach to general um, religious living, to general right living, I suppose one might call it. Um, and in that sense, the, the study of music appears, as I say, from, from the research done, to sit very nicely within that outlook in a way that perhaps um, the, in India, particularly with, with majority um, Hindu um, population, um, that I, music has generally been a devotional act. And in that mm -hmm. sense, belongs to that, that other area where, you know, I suppose in, in England in Victorian times, you sent your sixth son off to go and become the vicar or whatever. <laughs> um, in that sense, you know, Indian families will allow their fifth or sixth son to go off and, and become a sitar player or whatever. Unless, of course, it's, a, it's an actual musical family they come from. Um, and it has something of that sense about it at the moment. But um, the, the flip side is India... India is a is a thriving economy, and 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 Indians are. I don't want to typecast them, but there has always been a sense of looking out for business and looking out to get ahead. And it has been realised that Western music is now actually quite a lucrative opportunity in India. I mean, if I tell you that if you if you've passed grade five piano in India, you can get a teaching job, which pays you more than middle management. Wow. And, um, and in fact, I'm meeting all the time. I'm meeting people who've just finished their engineering degrees. They've, they've done grade eight piano. Uh, they finished an engineering degree. They can literally walk out of university and become a really quite well-paid piano teacher and maybe <laughs> pay a few concerts or whatever. But 
they they cannot get a job pretty much they can't get a job as a tea boy in an engineering company because there are so many engineering graduates so um that kind of yeah that's flipping around and people are seeing opportunities i see more entrepreneurial people opening up school after school and and putting in in various teachers sadly not always of of great um great educational experience um but you know where where the market is there um it's an exciting place so you know one one is trying just to to be able to give those people who haven't had those those opportunities of really great education um more opportunities so that those schools and that entrepreneurial spirit and i have to say that that embracing of hard work which which again seems to be a trait very much um part of the indian psyche um mm. it, it, that, those things can come together um but as i say hopefully scaffolded with um, some actual good educational knowledge yeah wow that's that's fascinating and uh, sort of leads on to to another area that that um mm. uh, was hoping to chat about which is that you do you do quite a lot of research as well i think don't you and so obviously you know all this stuff because of the research that you do what what are, what are your main sort of areas of research ah. Well, I mean, for the last couple of years, I've been based at New College in Oxford, uh, where I've been having, I have to say, a wonderful time. And I've had two key areas of research. Um, The first has been um, a a big study. In fact, this is how you and I contacted each other, first of all. I was Mm. doing a big study into facial gesture in pianists. Mm. Um, what, what What I discovered, almost by accident, is I went through all of the video footage I could find of every single pianist born before 1900. Um, so, I mean, that, obviously they were, they were playing concerts, many of them until the 1980s. And in all of that footage, none of them made any kind of visual facial gesture which seemed to relate to the music at all. Most wow. of them were appeared dispassionate or stony-faced. Um, and, and there were a few surprises in there as well. I mean, for instance, Liberace. Um, he had the trademark smile, but he never <laughs> flexed his face in relationship to a minor chord or a particularly yeah. beautiful phrase or anything like that. Mm. It, was, it was a trademark smile. And what I noticed was, right. if we took a slice every 20 years, the percentage of pianists making faces increased in that in that video footage until i was i think i was unable to find a pianist born after 1980 um who was professional and and, um obviously you know producing videos um who wasn't showing facial gestures to accompany that music Mm. and so the the big study was well it was two parts firstly was to what extent is the pianist aware of that? Are they doing it on purpose? What's their relationship between that facial gesture and their music making? And the mm-hmm. second thing was, to what extent uh, does the audience actually appreciate, react to it? Um, does it improve their experience of, um, of that piece of music and that performance? Um, so, yeah, it was, it was, it's been quite fun with, with um, all sorts of um, tests. And, and I got a group of pianists together and they tried... To, to play both, um, we said, facially and dispassionately, call it what you like. Um, and we did some various tests in the Hollywell Room in Oxford in front of live audiences and then um, had, had all kinds of interviews just to kind of get a sense of what's really going on and open the door into something which had never really been looked at before. Wow. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's been rather, 
rather exciting and, and a little contentious at times, needless to say. Um, Why contentious? It was, well, interestingly, quite a few of the pianists came in saying, yeah, I, I don't make faces. I, I come from a tradition where we, we, we look sternly yeah. at the piano and I'm doing a job. And um, the, first, the first slice of, of their performance um, we videoed and we didn't tell them why we were videoing it. And then we asked them to look at it and they were really surprised that they were doing quite a lot of facial gesture, which they weren't mm. aware of. And then when we asked those pianists particularly to say, OK, now try without, um, they, they often suggested that they felt a bit blocked or felt that they weren't connected with mm. their, their musical selves. So there clearly was some kind of connection there. And although this, isn't, this, is, this study is in its early days and, and it needs a great deal more work before, before definitive conclusions can be made, the, the, opening, the opening salvo, you might say, appears to be that the pianists from that, that former time, those, those 19th century, early 20th century pianists, and, and we see this even in their, their letters and their writings, appeared to be uh, what we might call diegetic. They appeared to be narrating the music and they felt that their job was to narrate the music to, to the audience. Mm-hmm. The Gradually, the more modern pianists started taking over, saying that they were, were the music. They, had, they were mimetic. They were trying to embody the music. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me in that sort of area that this split between making or not making faces comes about. So that was that was fascinating. Mm. Um, although there were obviously a great many subtleties to that issue and there were there were lots of different different strands. But yeah, that that was a, a strong force. The the other strong force, which again needs far more research, it would appear that the increase in facial gesture was mirrored by the decrease in piano sales in the 20th century. Um, so if we extrapolate that a bit can we imagine that, let's say, Hoffman or people like that, right at the beginning of the or backhouse, could have expected to be playing when they were playing at Carnegie Hall. They could have expected to have an audience who probably largely played the piano to some degree. They probably weren't concert mm. pianists, but they knew what the business of playing the piano was, or what, the, what it felt like, how it, how it was. Mm. And so possibly didn't have to give any pointers. And if you imagine gradually fewer members of that audience being pianists themselves. It mm. might well be mm. that pianists who gave a few more facial pointers, a few more facial gestures, became more popular because they could be read, if you like, in terms of what they were doing musically in a way that the others couldn't. And, and one could imagine mm. that process accumulating snowballing through the 20th century. Um, as I say, that's still hypothetical um, and needs, needs a bit more testing. So, yeah, that's, that was quite fun. Yes. Uh, oh, my, there's just so many things that have just come into my mind as you're saying all of that. I think one of the, the most important studies that, that I ever came across, um, uh, it's a study that sounds almost exactly the same as what you've done, except with body gestures. And it was found that the, the pianists who were told to play expressively, but without body gestures to show that expression. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm not explaining this well. So basically, three three... 
You, you know, you know the, you know the study. Oh, this would be oh, James Davidson's study. Yeah, J- James Davidson did great, a great deal of a pioneering work. Um, I think from the the nineties uh, or indeed possibly late eighties onwards on body movement in musicians and how it affects them and how it affects audiences. Uh, but she mm. only ever so far has written one brief paper on faces, and that was um, was not an empirical study. So that's essentially where I, I started, where where she had left off. But that's that's exactly right. Um, yes. I mean the the um, I think the scary one for for pianists, and I remember I was I was I was professor at um, Trinity Laban, academic professor, and I went into class one day and I said, "Guys, you need to read this new study." It was a study by a person called Say T S A Y, and what she had done is got a lot of people to watch videos of piano competitions. Oh yes, and yeah, you know the one, I know and. The one. Yeah, it was terrifying because it turned out that if you were an expert of some kind, as in as in a professor or whatever, and you just listened to the the clips of the pianists, you did slightly less well than random spread for who was going to win the piano competition. But mm. if you didn't hear them and you just watched them, you did really, really accurately. And that was very, very scary to us all because, you know, <laughs> what's the point of playing at all? Just Let's just look good and, and smile. Um, yes. So I wanted to kind of just see if there are far more subtleties to that. And I think that paper kind of left hanging there needed a little more exploration. So, yes, that's that's also been no, part been of that. Incredibly but I think valuable research, yeah. Uh, so, so just, just to just to go back to to the study that, that I was trying to uh, get to, am I right mm. in thinking that, that 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 original study showed that with an audience that has not had a musical education, that they cannot tell the difference between an expressive and a non-expressive performance without visual cues? I, th- I think cannot is a bit too strong. I think what what was shown was that they were far more susceptible to one right. with with visual cues than without. And that's certainly what we found in our facial study. We had a number of people who had never been to a concert before uh, come in and they were far more susceptible to the facial gesture um, performances mm. than the non-facial gesture performances. So, yeah, I think that was, that's was that been very, very clear. Wow. And, but, of course, if you're trying to get people to perform without any facial expressions at all, uh, who's the psychologist who studied micro-expressions? And, uh, you know, because, I mean, you're, you're never going to get rid of those, are you? It, obviously, the, you know, there is only so much we could do. And, and we, but our pianists went off for some, some months to, to work on this. And, and in many mm. ways, it wasn't so much about making or not making faces. It was about the fact that they shouldn't be tied in to their musical expression. And and actually, they all came back reporting that it was a really interesting approach to practice, um, just mm. thinking about what their faces were doing or not. Um, and and one, one, of the, one of the um test subjects came in and decided he was playing Stockhausen. He's, he's actually a bit of a Stockhausen expert. <laughs> and it was fascinating because he was someone who really felt that one shouldn't use facial gesture and, and generally in his life had tried not to. Uh, but then decided, actually, seeing as he was doing this this test where he had to do one performance without and one performance with facial gesture, he decided to very, very logically apply facial gesture to um, the fifth um, Klavierstück of Stockhausen. And mm. it was extraordinary because this this group, this audience who had basically, apart from one person, never heard Stockhausen before, 
actually rated it quite highly, more highly than some of the Debussy and so on, that it was being played around it. Um, and it seemed that, that his very um, studied, very thoughtful approach to doing this had worked really in his favour of expressing the music. So I thought that was, that was fascinating. Wow, wow. Um, I was interested as well in what you were saying about um, uh, diegetic um, uh, versus... Mm. What was the opposite of diegetic? Uh, mimetic. Mimetic, right, OK. Because yeah. it, it makes me think of the difference between traditional classic acting versus method acting. And, and it sounds like this exactly mirrors this. A- absolutely. In fact, um, the, one of my early papers on this subject obviously referenced Brecht and and um, Stanislavski, mm. and it's it's exactly yes. that. Um, and and there, in fact, there are many passages in in Brecht's advice to actors, which exactly talk about you know learning how to portray it rather than to be that thing. But I mean, this goes all the way back to to Plato and the Republic, where he discusses. Um, to be fair, in his case, he, he believes it's a kind of a moral issue, uh, but the issue of um, how one should perform. Um, in theatre, and to what extent one should be diegetic or mimetic, and, and he says, you know, the mimetic is is fine for children and nurses, but oh, you know, <laughs> the, the state requires diegetic performance for the morality of its citizens, um, mm. and that was really the starting point for for that particular sort of journey for me, anyway. Yeah, mm. and I, I've been reflecting personally uh, recently in my own playing that, that I, I'm becoming aware, actually, I can be much more narrative with everything and, and less sort of stuck in the indulgent emotions. And it's something I've been playing around in, in my own playing. Uh, how, how, how has this fed back into, into how you play and how you approach stuff? Well, you know, it's, it's been really interesting. Um, both myself and, and indeed the subjects, we all came back and said, gosh, isn't it a lot easier to memorise something when you're not trying to be it? And and you kind of you, know, you guide the car or you guide the plane, and you don't get lost in the music. And it's those moments when you get lost in music that you sometimes get lost. And they felt very strong. And I certainly have found this that when I'm I'm doing my job and I'm really thinking about how I'm how I'm uh, structuring what I'm doing and and what exactly I want to produce and what I want what effect I want to have. I'm mm. so I feel so much stronger or more in control or, or together. I suppose. Um, that was that was very interesting. And and the second thing, and we all found this, there are so many moments when you think you've done this most wonderful phrase with subtle rubato and so on, and you listen back to the recording and particularly watch the video, but with, with your eyes shut, and you realise you've just totally played it straight, but done some wonderful faces. And, um, you know, that was really telling. And, and suddenly, as soon as you get rid of the wonderful faces, you actually do a rubato. Um, so, yeah, just a, a sense of having rather more control over one's music and, and indeed one's, one's piano um, was, was a really interesting side effect, or indeed maybe it's not a side effect, maybe it's the, the, the main effect. Yeah. yeah, I think a really fascinating... But, co- sorry, go on. I was going to say, but Bob, the, the other study that I was doing while, while I've been in Oxford oh, is okay. the one that I particularly <laughs> wanted to chat to you about um, right, to, okay, okay. to turn the tame tables. Because the other study I'm doing is into what I'm calling piano concert arrangement. And what that is, is, oh, yes. um, and it was, mm. yeah, it was very frequently, very frequently the case in the 19th century that pianists, when they were, and even the late 19th century, when they were playing 
a, a piece of music, they were doing their own version of it. And, and this might be very extreme in the case of a Godofsky, or like, say less extreme in, in Liszt's version of the Schubert Wanderer fantasy, perhaps. And I'm sure mm. there are lots of places, um, I, I know this certainly in Busoni and things, where you know deft little facilitations mean that they've slightly rearranged the music. And of course, today, particularly with an audience who have probably know the sound of that music or have access to the sound of that music very easily through mp3 and and, and recordings and so on um they know what to expect next and Mm. that that the relationship with the score now is very different whereas Liszt and Buzoni and Godofsky saw it as the starting point an invitation to interpret you might say mm, mm-hmm. um, modern pianists tend to think of it as a kind of straight jacket and, and a, a rod to beat themselves with in case they didn't put the, the slur in the right place or whatever. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm particularly interested in where pianists change the pitches of, an, of, of notes, of, of pieces to, to reinterpret them, to, to modernize them. I, I basically the cover versions of piano music. And I, of course, mm. I also came across you because I know you do this. Um, so I'd, I'd love to know a bit more about did, did how I, did you I came. Send you, yes, yes, did, did I send did. you my copy of the Chopin? Um, the Chopin yes, absolutely. Nocturne. Yeah, well, I, I love it. You... I think it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it was very self-indulgent. I just went crazy with that. Um, I, I've always loved transcriptions um, and, and, and paraphrases. Um, mm. So, so for example, I love the Volodos um, arrangements of Rachmaninoff and Earl Wilde's um, Rachmaninoff songs and Rachmaninoff's arrangements of, of stuff. And then, of course, mm. there's things like the Bach Brissoni Chacon, and you know, mm-hmm. you know I'm, I'm a sucker for all that kind of stuff. But, but I, you know, I've always been a little bit rebellious uh, in the world of classical music. That I think that the classical music that the world can be very. Um, how, how can I say stuffy that people think everything has Uptight. to be authentic? Um, yes, you know everything has the authenticity is is so important uh, to to mm. ridiculous levels and and I, and, and some I of agree. the time I think that that's got its place but but sometimes I th- I love creativity I love merging of, of boundaries uh, and um, yeah you know I um, I, I, I love a, a CD that I've got of uh, it's almost all. Chopin's minute waltz, but um, ah, I know it. Ex- I know very well. Everyone. Yes, yes, Ullen. <laughs> so, so yes. I lo- yeah, I, I love the, that that thing where people take something as a starting point. I mean, especially with with Chopin. Chopin really lends itself to to that kind of thing. But, oh, well, um, I was going to ask you, why did you find Chopin particularly lend it lends itself to that? Because <laughs> I, this study did show that, but I'm wondering why you think so. Okay, well, because uh, um, and I'm going to sound. I'm going to horrify people and I'm just going to put it out there and, and allow people to be horrified. I kind of um, find it hard to love Chopin a lot of the time. And I, I used okay. to totally adore Chopin, but but I kind of, I'm growing to find find it harder and harder to love Chopin because a lot of the time there's a tune and there's like a num cha cha bass and that's it. And I'm like, where are all your counterpoints? Where are all the other textures? Where's... Uh, um, so, so in a way, it's sort of, um, you know, you have these beautiful tunes and you have these very simple bass lines and, and you don't have, say, all the thick layers that you'd have in someone like Rachmaninoff. So mm-hmm. I'm sort of thinking, OK, let's sort of make this more interesting. Let's add all these loads of harmonies. And, and also, I do think that there's something I think that in many ways for me, Chopin was almost like the first jazz musician. There's something almost bebop-like about the way that he puts his lines together in that sort of, uh, I think the, the, the bel canto improvisatory mm. style 
it's um, it's like how many dozens of notes can you take from getting one note to the next note? <laughs> if you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I totally get so, that, yeah. Um, and, and I think it's his harmonies. Um, you know, he's, he's already using lots of altered dominance and um, mm-hmm. that his, his harmonies already are almost jazz in a way that you can develop into much further jazz. Um, but, um, you know, there's, there's a whole genre of Polish jazz pianists who, who do much better than, than I do, this sort of taking a, a Chopin piece and then turning it into the most incredible jazz journey. There's, there's actually a, a CD, which I, I love. I can't remember who it's by, but it's the entire four movements of the Chopin Second Piano Concerto with all the different sort of sections intact of sonata form done with a jazz trio, done jazz. And that's just incredible. I'm, in, uh, I don't I'm know intrigued. You I really want to hear that. Mm. So, I mean, there's so many Polish jazz pianists who do this kind of thing, and and I've always sort of enjoyed it. And then um, uh, I just happened, I've always wanted to be able to arrange in that jazz style, but sort of didn't feel very good at it. And and I went to a jazz guitar workshop, um, and in the jazz guitar workshop, he was talking a lot about the super Locrian mode and auto dominance, and it just kind of unlocked a load of stuff that I've been trying to understand about mm. jazz. And that was sort of, it created an avalanche of arranging and composing that was sort of based around lots of auto-dominance, which was the sound that I've been searching for for, for ages. Hey, uh, and gosh, modes of the melodic it. minor. Um, yeah. So, yeah, anyway, sorry, I went, I went off. No, uh, not at all. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by it because, you know, it's, it, it's it tended to be the province of some of the most interesting pianists, people like Liszt, Buzoni, Godowski, all sorts of people, mm. Michalowski, mm. really, really interesting people approach this. And, and indeed, more recently, Volodos and occasionally Hamlin do this. Um, oh, he's brilliant. Yes. Yeah. But have, have you heard Volodos's recording of the Dante Sonata of Liszt, where he adds all sorts of things along the way. I mean, you know, it's perilous enough as it is. But um, what he does, essentially, is he rewrites it for the modern concert Steinway so that the modern concert Steinway sounds like it's at the edge of what it can do. Whereas, you know, usually, although it's it's a big, scary piece, wow. um, the piano doesn't feel put through its paces normally. And, and now, with extra sort of patterns and additions and so on, I, I find it mm. extraordinary. And I've, I've played it to a few people. Um, people, of course, who don't, particularly know the Dante Sonata, don't particularly notice that he's doing some extra stuff and, and they're perfectly happy. Um, mm. People who are connoisseurs are going, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, because <laughs> they are listening, you might say, in the front of their eyes or the front of their ears. They don't know what's about to happen. So it's it's really an adventure for them. They, you know, yeah, yeah. What's, gonna, what's he going to do next? And then the sort of the middle ground of people who know it fairly well tend to hate it because it's not doing what they know it should do, which is is their recording. Um, yes. But my, I'm wondering, and I'd, I'd love to know if, if your, your experience was this, um, from, from people hearing you, your, your arrangement, whether it's when, when an audience listens to a, a rearrangement, a concert arrangement, um, are they listening better or more intently because they are listening to what's he going to do next rather than I know how this is going to go? What, did, what have you found? 
I, I really couldn't tell you because I, okay. I, I can't be in the mind of my audience. And, and also, um, when I'm playing something, because the, yeah, the piece that, that we're talking about here was the Chopin F minor nocturne. Uh, I can't remember the opus number. And I've kept mm. the entire structure intact. And, yeah. and to be honest, I don't know how many people in my audience know that piece inside out well enough to be sort of um, um, follow every little twist and turn of what I do with it. Um, uh, so okay. I, I honestly well, I'll tell, tell you this you. much, Bob. I heard about it in Oxford about three days after you performed it. So, you know, people were talking about it. Oh, wow. Wow. I, I was blown away that, because this was in Huddersfield. And, and when you contacted yep. me, I was like, how on earth did you find out about that from some sort of local provincial thing? I was quite shocked. Um, but, no, but what people, you were describing, I, I have not, uh, I've not heard Polidus's uh, Dante Snut. It sounds amazing. And it sounds very, very similar to the stuff that Horowitz did, because um, obviously Horowitz was, was adding his own touches. And actually, Actually, at the moment, I'm I'm learning the the Horowitz um, Sansol Dance Macabre, which oh, is yes. crazily bloody difficult. I'm like, why? Yep. I, um, I had it approved for my um, my Trinity um, uh, Fellowship diploma, so I'm like, well, I've oh, got brilliant. to learn the bloody thing now. <laughs> so that's but, great. That, that's, uh, yeah, but but that piece absolutely falls under what you're saying, and the stuff that yeah. Horowitz throws in there, like he, he was like, yeah, yeah, the list version, nah, the list version's boring and not difficult enough, and the stuff that he puts in there, because you know, I try and approach I'd... pieces uh, from a compositional point of view, like what's he doing here, and the stuff that Horowitz does with it, I'm like, what the hell is this? I can't understand what it is, but it sounds incredible. It's it, and he understood the piano so well. He really knew what was going to work, how to balance things. Um, mm. Often, I have to say, although crazy stuff happens in those Horowitz arrangements and rearrangements, they're often so pianistic that they're they're slightly physically easier than some of the originals. Um, and, and I think they're amazing. I think the one where which didn't work so well um, is the pictures at an exhibition. I think that that just mm. didn't fall in with with taste at the time and and was just too far, too much over the top and so on. Um, but having said that, you know, I'm, I'm a lover of Emerson, Lake and Palmer's versions of um, pictures and exhibitions. <laughs> yes. so, I mean, I'm hardly the yes. one to talk, am I? Uh, although, although to be fair, I mean, I, yeah, I love the ELP um, sort of massive over the top prog rockness of it all. But, but the, the beauty of Mussorgsky's piano writing is its simplicity, is the fact that, that he's not um, like Rachmaninoff. Uh, I think if you try and take a piece of music which is so orchestral and simple in its writing that, that there's a bit of a, a sort of cognitive dissonance perhaps with that. Mm. I, th yeah. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think a lot of the pieces that were re... well, were covered by, by the various artists, whether it's Horowitz or, um, or indeed earlier artists, um, they often were looking for more expression than the original composer had given them. And it seems to me this is why Chopin is often um, used and, and occasionally abused in this way, uh, because a great deal of the music was probably not meant for concert purposes. It was, it was there, it was probably going to be played in salons or, or indeed by people at home. But it's so popular, we now play it in public. Um, but of course, it isn't always best suited in its writing for public performance, um, similarly with some of some of the Bach. Um, and you can see why people like Buzoni and so on said, well, OK, this thing was written at that time, which wasn't really for concerts. How can mm. we we make this concertable, you might say? Yeah. And and this is their 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 way forward. And I think um, I think lots of people with the pictures and exhibition 
felt, and, and maybe even now occasionally feel, that you're quite right, it's, it's restrained, it's classical, but its ideas are so big and, and, and mm. vivid that it should be vivid. And I think you know, certainly, when, certainly when I used to play it when I was, I was much younger, I was always thinking, oh, this should be enormous and, and, and glorious and fabulous and epic. And, mm. of course, it, it's actually a bit restrained. And, and that tension between those two things, it seems, is, is slightly problematic when one, when one plays pictures. Um, mm. And I suppose in some ways Horowitz solved that problem in some way, although causing others along the way, I suppose. <laughs> So what, what are the main findings that you found in that research? Because that, that sounds fascinating. Oh, well, so far, no, I'm, I'm taking this a lot further, hopefully. Um, at the moment, it, what, it has generally been assumed that by the middle of the 19th century, most performing musicians had come under the concept of the work. That is to say that a composer writes this piece of music and it is now called a work which exists mm. somewhere, not necessarily in the score, although the score is its blueprint. It exists as something that is unchangeable in the same way as a painting or a sculpture. It's been created, like, it exists. Like on um, a platonic whereas, level somewhere. Absolutely. Uh, whereas yeah. previously, um, you know, people would improvise round things. One didn't necessarily follow this very strongly. However, it seems from my research that a multitude of pianists in the second half of the nineteenth um, century and indeed the early twentieth century had scant regard for this work concept um, and were carrying on taking the score as a starting point and evolving the nature of of a, of a piece or work, if you want to call it, for the times and indeed the place that they were playing in, mm. and were very, very comfortable about that. Um, and this has not been really thought about um, and, and it's sort of been shoved under the carpet. And it, in my research so far, I've found 167 examples of, of this kind of rearrangement. And I haven't even mm. started looking at the piano rolls where I know I'm going to see you know, many, many, many more. Um, so that side of it says, OK, clearly something was going on here that possibly made the concert experience more vivid, more now, more alive than perhaps it does now. The other half of this, as you said earlier, um, I'm concerned that our historically informed performance has severely narrowed our spectrum of interpretation. Mm. And people are not really being very imaginative. Um, certainly, I, I've certainly had students who said, well, I've done all the right things. I've ticked all the boxes. Therefore, it must be a good performance. <laughs> um, forgetting that, obviously, that's, that's not quite how it works. Um, yeah. And it seems to me that coming, taking this piece, whatever it is, and rewriting it becomes a method of ownership. It is owned by the pianist. It is an adventure for the audience. Um, it has a real artistic input and, and a real pianistic input um, from the, the person performing it in a way that, that um, uh, an historically informed performance maybe doesn't really have. And I just think there's some room now, and I can see this with Volodos and Hamlin trying out their, or, or, or indeed not trying out, putting out their exemplars. Um, I can see that this seems to be a good time in the sort of cycle of creativity, profligacy and and reigning in to, to bring something like that back to the table. Um, what my hope is in you know, some time, not, not immediately, two or three years, um, I'd quite like to experiment with taking new music 
and seeing what will happen, what, what will composers say, what will publishers say, if I do a rewrite um, for a different circumstance. Um, you know, that's, that's quite a dangerous copyright thing to do. That's going to be certainly subversive. Um, I imagine I might get into lots of trouble with, with Fabers or whomever, let's see. Um, but yeah, I think... So, sorry, let me just clarify, rewrite of, yeah. of what? Of, of your own stuff or of... Uh, well, of, no, no, of, of, of contemporary piano music by, by contemporary oh, right. composers. Let's, let's say Julian Anderson or, or Tom Adez or whatever and say, well, I've, I've done a rewrite. Okay. Um, and I'm performing that version wow. rather than your version. Um, how that does, very how does that... Mm. Yeah, it's a very thorny subject. But, but let's be honest, if, if I'm playing... A, a concert of, of contemporary music and if I happen to write to the publisher and say listen um, I'm probably going to play a wrong note in this they'll probably go yeah well yeah you probably are no problem um, mm-hmm. oh so can I play two wrong notes then well <laughs> I'd rather you didn't but you might do but if I preordain those two wrong notes is that bad then um, and it gets us into a whole kind of interesting area because at what point does copyright of, of a piece of music also relate to that which is added by the performer. Um, I think since Stravinsky, um, we've tried to diminish the role of the performer into some kind of, of person who's doing a job on behalf of the composer. Um, mm. But more recently, particularly in the, in the popular music field, um, there have been a number of judgments which say that a particular sound created in the studio, even though their notes were written by someone else, that sound added to the nature of that recording. Um, Can and you therefore give an their example? Um, gosh, there is a flute solo in... Oh, that's very annoying. I cannot... I'll have to go and look <laughs> this one up, Bob. I'm really sorry. That's I'm, very embarrassing. No, that's fine. Um, we can stick it in the, in the show notes afterwards. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a test... There, there is a case where um, they decided that the sound, the way this flute had been used, was in itself... Um, a character of the performance apart from right. the pitches and the rhythms. Um, so, yeah, um, it, it kind of messes, messes with the form a bit. I mean, you know, one, one can turn it around a bit. Most people, if you say, oh, yeah, do you know, um, do you know that song, The Mighty Quinn? Most people of a certain generation will say, yeah, that's, that's Manfred Mann, isn't it? Um, because mm. they, they own it from their performance. Of course, it's, mm. it's written by Bob Dylan. Um, but no one knows the Bob Dylan performance because the Manfred Man was more sat better in that environment at the time it was performed. Um, yeah, likewise, yeah. when Hendrix did All Along the Watchtower, which of course is also yes. a Bob Dylan song, um, Bob Dylan stops singing that song for, for a number of years and then starts mm-hmm. using elements of Hendrix's performance in mm-hmm. his performance. Mm-hmm. So, so actually, whose song is it at that point? Is it still Bob Dylan's? Is it Hendrix's? Hendrix has clearly added something in the performance. Well, that's um, such a complicated then... issue because you have yeah. like the, the, the one of sort of um, in terms of the feeling of, of like, well, who do you feel owns it? And then there's the business side of it, of like, yeah. well, who legally? And, and I think the two are probably quite different. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I suspect, and particularly in, in our modern world where we do have a much broader outlook on this concept of the cover version and ownership and recreation and, and indeed, you know, sequels and prequels and remakes of, of films and, and all sorts of things. Um, and indeed, particularly versioning, different versions, uh, particularly of computer programs and open source software. We're very open mm. to something being the same 
and yet different in some way. It's the same program, it's the same operating system, yeah. but it has evolved into version five or six. And that's not a problem. And we're comfortable with lots of versions existing at the same time. And yet we're not very comfortable in Western classical music of different versions of a of a, of a piece of music yeah. existing at the and same I, time. I, I think classical audiences, because... And this is... There's so many things that I still want to talk about, and I think we're going to run out of time, but I mean, I haven't even... Okay. I've barely scratched the surface of, of most of the <laughs> questions, but... Uh, but um, Oh, where were we just then? Um, yeah, so audiences um, are getting quite old and traditional. Like classical audiences, um, just are certainly the ones that go to concert halls anyway, uh, 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 sort of over a certain age. And they tend to be quite conservative and traditional in their tastes and, and sort of feel that things should be a certain way. Um, but, but then, yeah, one thing that I wanted to get into at, at some point was sort of um, finding newer, younger, fresher audiences for classical music. Sure. But, you know, Bob, I wonder, yes, you're, you're quite right. We, we have an, an older audience who are used to the way things are. I wonder to what extent they're used to the way things are, because that's how we as performers have formed them. And mm. is, it, is it not our responsibility in many ways to recreate that, that environment, that that kind of church of the concert and change it out of a church into a lively environment, a, a, an environment that's that's thriving and not um, some kind of history, not something mm. from from the past. Um, and, and this may be one way of, of doing that. Um, but yes, I, I mean, obviously, you know, getting younger audiences in is, is the holy grail of mm. Western classical music <laughs> at the moment. Um, yes. What I will tell you, one, one experiment I tried um, in India um, was that, um, of course, you know, young audiences at, at pop music concerts are chatting to each other, going, oh, this is great, or isn't this awesome, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, it doesn't work so well at a classical music concert. Um, what we did was put up a screen with live tweets. So people could comment on the performance as it was going on, out of sight of the performers, because that was that was something I was, yeah. didn't want to see. Um, yes. And that chat could carry on silently. Those people in the room could feel that they were part of a community rather than um, mm. a, 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 you know, being being lectured to by by me on stage. Um, it's, it's an experiment I've yet to try in England, and let's see how that one works. But it, it seems to me that those kinds of reimagining the concert experience, particularly with the help yes. of modern technology, may help. Now you've opened the can of worms, and I'm like, do I do I start going there? I mean, like, yeah, weren't there some concert halls that started experimenting with having a, a particular place put aside for young bloggers to be able to use their phones as they were watching the concert? Now, personally, I find the thought absolutely horrific, but that's because I like the, the tradition and convention that, that you just focus on the music without interruptions. But for young audiences, that's that's very difficult. They're not in the habit of that. But, oh, this is such a can of worms. But, so much, but also, uh, I know it's a huge can of worms, Bob, Bob but of course, also, <laughs> yeah, this is a tradition that doesn't extend, you know, 200 years. It only extends about 150, 160 years. Um, oh, the yeah. first concerts were noisy affairs and, and opera in the 1830s and 40s, you, you chatted and you just stopped for the main arias. Um, we've... Yeah, yeah, we've yeah. You know, it's okay. It didn't and, damage and this is why, music. And this is why, why why Wagner designed his new opera house at Bayreuth the way he did, so that people stopped doing all that stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and 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 Wagner was very keen for Wagner to be the most important person in the room. Um, and, 
And I don't well, think I'm not we sure. think as about narcissistic as he was. Now. As narcissistic as he was, I actually give, I, I, I want to be generous to him and go, actually, was that about Wagner being the most important person or his, or his music drama being the most important thing in the room? I'm going to be generous. I, I accept your point entirely. I mean, of course, that was an overstatement. But yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, actually, that, that was something that I did want to go towards because hmm. uh, this sort of came up very unexpectedly when I was just doing a little bit of research today. Uh, yeah, two days ago, I recorded a new podcast episode with my friend where uh, basically we just chat about, uh, about stuff. And this one, I've been thinking a lot recently about narcissism and music making and sort of really sort of quite deeply thinking how you can take psychological definitions and tools and sort of what is narcissism what's the opposite of narcissism what's narcissism in music making and then I saw this interview that that popped up five days ago where this sort of actually popped up in your interview and it was interesting because you'd been asked what is your definition of success and your definition of success was something uh, along the lines of uh, well, well what, what was it can you remember what you said golly I can't remember uh, what I said. I'm, That's I'm really not on my laptop, sorry. but, well, but yeah, no, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. But but it's basically yeah, sure. you know about engaging people when people are sure. you know engage. something along those lines. And then hmm. and then in the sentence afterwards, you were uh, discussing about how important it is with young pianists to sort of um, avoid narcissism. And I thought, mm. oh my god, we have to talk about this because because okay. I've literally only sure. just been talking about narcissism in music. Yeah. Um, is, is this something you think about in, in your playing, in other people's playing? I, you know, it's very, it's a very fine line, isn't it? You're a particular as a solo artist. You're up there, you have X number of people paying to, to sit and watch what you do. And it's, and, and you have to do it strongly. You are, you are a performer, you are an actor, you are a, a purveyor, purveyor or orator of this music. And you have to make it feel like it, it hits them between the eyes. And you can't do that mm. apologetically. Um, you, have to, you have to drive that music or you have to present that music in, in some sort of charismatic way, in some way that really impacts on behalf of the music itself and possibly on behalf of the composer and indeed to some extent on your own behalf, on, the, on behalf mm. of your interpretation, your ideas. It is very, very easy when you come off stage, or indeed when you're going on stage, to kind of forget that it is still a performance. And there is, you know, one, one and can accumulate that sense of, of self-importance and uh, of narcissism. And, and particularly if, if you're bolstered by, by an audience or a, a public that likes what you're doing, then obviously that, that can very, very much increase. Um, I think that... Is, is very difficult, but it is a very fine line because, you know, the real truth is that if if you're passionate about music, you just, just love music, then you can stay at home and love music. You can love music by listening to it or you can love music by playing it. If you're going to decide to go and stand in front of some other people or sit in front of some other people and present your idea of how that music should go, um, you've got to, there's probably got to be a reason for it. Um, you know, yes, it might be the money, um, but it equally might be all sorts of psychological need or damage or whatever. Mm, and I think mm. at some point, um, all performers who are who are going to do the journey, the full journey, 
mm. have to kind of come to terms with what's my particular reason for being out there. Is it yes. because I just love yes. the thrill of the adrenaline? Is it because mm. I want the audience to love me? Is it because yeah. I need the money, which in many ways is the purest um, approach, <laughs> if you see what I mean, or the most honest? Um, yes. and, and a thousand other things. Is it because, you know... Uh, I, I need to feel worthwhile in society. I don't know. There, there are many, mm. many ways to, to think about it. But there is a re- there's got to be a reason why, instead of sitting in your living room and enjoying recordings, or indeed enjoying your piano and, and making music, you are pushing yourself out there in front of people and asking them to pay for it. Um, yes. And I think that's very easily perceivable as, and sometimes is, a narcissistic um, tendency. Yes, and yes. It, you know, I'm not even sure if narcissism is necessarily bad um, in music because we do need people to draw the audience in, to make them focus in one particular place. And um, I wonder to what extent um, many artists over the years have said, ah, oh, yes, it's all about the music, but have really meant it's all about my performance of the mm, music. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 a very very complex issue. I suppose, though, we might decide that at the point where the performer does something to show off something about themselves which doesn't seem to relate to the to the purveying or or narration of this music, um, that might be considered to be a narcissistic act. Um, there are probably a few moments in Horowitz's performances where those octaves just go a bit wilder <laughs> than they ever need to. Um, yes. I love them. Don't don't get me wrong. I, I, you know, for me, the, the thrill of those octaves, and I'm sure he's playing slightly faster than he can, which is what gives that incredible visceral feel to that to those mm, moments. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They're amazing. And, and they certainly brought in audiences who, who might not have thought about going to piano concerts, but felt that this was something immediate and energetic and dangerous and all of those things. But were they about the music or were they about Horowitz's ability to, to play octaves very fast? I think that might be a different issue. Um, I, th- I think what, what was interesting about this in this particular conversation, if I can draw this all the way back to uh, what we were talking about, di- diegetic and mimetic, is that mm. you were saying that when pianists use facial expressions it's because that it's like a form of method acting that they are losing their sense of self and, and sort of becoming the music and and that is um uh, i think uh, in many ways sort of the opposite of the narcissistic approach um that that actually a, a lot of the time that the sort of the, the modern way of playing expressively is to kind of lose the ego is to lose the self um wh- what do you think about that i think there, I, there is certainly some part of that. Um, I remember an interview with Marta Argerich from, from her early years, probably from the 1960s or 70s, and she sort of says she, she's interested in exactly that, losing herself and finding out where the, how the subconscious emerges in performance. Um, mm. So she would, she would organise her practice very well and then just release on stage to see what came out. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, I suppose we, we can say in possibly a narrow outlook that there is a lack of ego in the sense that that um, she isn't driving the music knowingly at those points, yes. if that's what she did. But yes. isn't there also a, a curious ego about releasing that which is 
highly personal and, and you know, subconscious onto in, in public. Um, that, that's a kind of quite a curious thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's all paradoxes and, and balances. Yeah. Uh, but something that strikes me about about hearing you talk about music, watching you play music on YouTube, is that I'm guessing that your focus when you are performing, your focus is on the music and on the love of the music. And the focus isn't on, oh, listen to how brilliant I am. Um, do you know what I mean? Oh, well, that, that's very simple, Bob. I, I'm not very brilliant. Um, so all I can get away <laughs> with is trying to play the next note as well as I can. Um, and that's all I ever try and do, play the next note as well as I can. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of it. And, um, yeah. you know, it, as as far as I'm concerned, it's always really, really hard work um, to, to do that. And, and um, just occasionally it all comes together and go, oh, yeah, that was that was a nice day. Um, so yeah, I, I just yes, that is, I suppose, broadly my outlook. Okay. Well, um, it's it's been it's been over an hour. You, you've been very generous with with your time. What have uh, you got coming up? It's absolute pleasure what? to chat to you, Bob. <laughs> um, so so you've got the, the Sony. Yes, yes. Tell us about the the things coming up that, that we should know. Oh about. sure. So basically, next week is is my, my is devoted to Buzoni. Um, I've been fascinated by Buzoni since I was about sixteen years old, and I wrote my master's thesis on Buzoni, and I played lots of recitals of purely of Buzoni and so on, and wandered around the world um, playing mostly the later music, the, the not the not the um, Bach arrangements and so on, though I, I have played them. And so as as a little birthday present to myself, I have, I've had a rotund birthday this year. As a little birthday present to myself, I'm putting on this mini Buzoni festival at St John's Smith Square next week. So that's um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 28th, 29th, 30th of November. And it's about the music of Yes, sorry, 2019. <laughs> and it's about the music that sits on either side of his great um, aesthetic change. So um, until until about 1904, 1905, he's very much influenced by Romanticism, by, by Brahms, who had been his mentor, and by Liszt. He was a, he was a very, very um, well-known and, and highly regarded Liszt player, although he'd never been a student of Liszt's. And then... Just after he writes the piano concerto in 1903-1904, he starts to move away from this and produces his, his absolutely important seminal pamphlet um, called Towards a New Aesthetic of Music, where he discusses essentially what is music going to mean in the modernist world and how mm. is he going to car carry on forward with not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, which I think he felt Schoenberg rather had. And then on the other side of 1907... We get these various pieces like the elegies and so on, um, which are really surprisingly forward looking, but yet mm. still largely using 19th century pianistic techniques, um, but with, I suppose one might say, early modernist pictures, early modernist notes and, and ideas. And so the, 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 the festival centers around this kind of this turning point with uh, the second violin sonata, uh, which is kind of his last big romantic work then the piano mm. concerto which kind of sits slight it's is looking forward to modernism it's it's a bit like it's basically a Mahler symphony with a with an obligato piano going all the way through <laughs> it it embraces the world the last movement has a mm. hymn to allah written by the danish poet Olenschlager um mm. from his from his um theater piece aladdin uh, but equally there's there's italian music in it and 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 it's 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 you know extraordinary cornucopia mm. and then yeah. we we have 
these elegies and his, um, we were talking obviously about piano concert arrangement, his piano concert arrangement of Schoenberg's piece, Opus 11, number two. And he takes mm-hmm. this, this piece and, and re, reorganizes it. Reorganizes it isn't even the right word. He covers it um, into <laughs> the same piece, but essentially with 19th century piano, pianistic approaches. And, right. and it's, it's really odd. It's, it's the same piece, but just by a different composer um so that's that's in there as well and there's a couple of couple of premieres um there's the um the original ending to the Busoni Sonatina Seconda uh which is stuck away in a library in Germany which I've I've dragged out and uh, will be playing apparently for the first time and um there's the oh there's the very early um piano concerto for piano and string quartet which he wrote when he was 12 years old um, which is Whoa. a real, real curiosity. So that should be, yeah, it's, it's mm. a sort of, it's a, it's going to be a fun few days, I think. Wow. So I've, I've not heard Busoni's Schoenberg um, arrangement, but is that the kind mm. of thing you were describing when you said you were interested in taking contemporary music, like, and, and maybe doing a more tonal arrangement? Well, I, I mean, not necessarily more tonal, uh, but yes, that is right. I mean, Busoni's is not more tonal. It's just, I would say, ah. more, more 19th century pianistic shall we say and so there's the a fascinating yeah there's a fascinating um letter exchange between him and schoenberg about this his arrangement of it and and schoenberg really obviously admires busoni but can't stand what he's done to his piece because <laughs> for schoenberg part of his outlook was to take away the you might say the romantic overcoat the kind of yes. the nice sheen of that pianism to make it ugly busoni's piece is still ugly Orally, it's still it's harsh and so on. Does he but use the word ugly? the edges of it. Um, does, does he explicitly say he wants it to he, be ugly? He doesn't use the word ugly. That, that's my word. <laughs> but um, I, it seems to me that both Schoenberg and Busoni, after this period, after about 1907, are very comfortable writing music that is, you might call it ugly or galvanic or protean or whatever. It is your yeah. rugged, you know. But I think they're very yeah. comfortable writing music that is gnarled. Um, and I yes. don't, you know, that's part of part of life um, at that particular that period, part of artistic outlook. And I think that that's okay mm. to be comfortable with that. So, so it's like it's just become too civilized again. It's it's lost its. Uh, yeah. yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, you know, does it get under the skin enough? Is is always the question, mm. really, isn't it? Mm. Anyway, do you know what? I could talk to you for, I think, hours and hours. Um, let's let's do it again, Bob. Insta- yeah, yeah, we should do. There's still so many more things I'd love to talk yeah. about. Um, yeah, thank you so much, uh, Carl. And, and, um, thank yeah, you. Um, we're we're going to stay in touch so that we can put loads of things into the show notes. Ooh. So for people listening, yeah, all the stuff that we've spoken about will all appear in the show notes. Um, so, yeah, th- thanks very much, Carl. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, thanks very much. Thanks so much, Bob. It's been an absolute pleasure. So, as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate us on iTunes or wherever else you download the podcast or or stream it. And do leave us ratings and comments and send messages. It's always appreciated. And thank you very much for tuning in and see you all for the next podcast. Thank you very much.